Science Faction is a show about unbelievable discoveries. Science Faction! You're listening to Science Faction. Things have come a long way since the time when many humans believed in preformationism. Hundreds of years ago, people actually thought that the way that humans were made was by men passing on to women a tiny package with a totally preformed whole person inside of it. It was then up to the woman to carry and grow this person inside her belly until it was big enough to come out. Today, we know that it doesn't work that way at all. Instead, both the man and the woman each give a single cell that join together. This cell is stored inside the mother and then differentiates over many weeks into the different cells that make up a whole human. But even if all of our biological information comes from our two parents, new research is strangely suggesting that our mom's past partners might leave a mark and play a part in the way we look. At least in flies. Today on Science Faction, I look like my mom's ex. Science Faction 101. We speak in the thousand most used words. The researchers we talk to don't. These thousand words come from... The Opka 5 text editor. Made by scientist... Theo Sanderson. (laughs) Theo Sanderson. We build on these accepted words using prefixes and suffixes. And we allow the use of numbers and names. From the names of people and places to the names of life forms and scientific fields. We see these few little exceptions as key to bringing you stories factually and informatively. And now for the show. Way back in the day, there were many ideas that, just like preformationism, tried to explain how humans are formed. Greeks, Egyptians, and many different groups of people all had different ideas on how this worked. But this was all kind of forgotten when the field of genetics came around. Once we figured out genes and DNA, and obviously that's a really strong form of inheritance, we sort of forgot about everything else. That's Dr. Crane. It was such a beautiful idea, and and we had such elegant evidence of genetic inheritance that we just sort of went, okay, well, nothing else really matters. And so many scientists from around the world put all of their time and money into drawing out the entire genetic directives of many species with great attention to humans. Between 1990 and 2003, Something called the Human Genome Project drew out the complete genetic plan of a human. This huge undertaking can now be used to explain most things about us, but not everything. Yeah, we've sequenced the genome now, and we thought we'd be able to explain everything, but of course we can't, and now we have to look at other mechanisms. And that is exactly what Dr. Angela Crane is doing. Hi, I'm Angela Crane. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of New South Wales, Australia. I work with Russell Bondriansky, and we're both really interested in non-genetic inheritance. This is a relatively new field that's starting to get more and more attention. The reason why I think this kind of research is important is it's just challenging ideas. Um, So, you know, we thought we had everything figured out. As I said, 
and as um, you said, you know, at school and even at uni, if you read the textbooks, it says, you know, we inherit our genes from our parents and that's all. And, you know, we say it with such definite conviction, it's usually a trigger for me to say, hang on, is that really all there is to the story? When you're at school, you're always told that you get genes from your parents and that's all. They can't pass on any acquired traits. But now it's becoming apparent that we get a lot of different things from our parents, not just their genes. When dads pass on their single cell to help form a child, the cell doesn't just come alone. It's surrounded by other matter. The males pass on not just sperm, but semen. Inside that semen is a whole cocktail of different things that we actually, first of all, don't really know what they are and really have no idea what they do. I just can't help thinking that they have to do something. And that's what I'm really interested in looking at. While our first thought might be to figure this out for humans, this question also relates to most other animals. And it's way easier to approach this question by looking at other species, because answering it for humans comes with a lot of experimental and humane concerns. So Angela's team turned their attention to the fly. We work on a local species of Nereid fly. Their common name is long-legged flies. Also known as Telestolinus angusticolus. But we'll just stick with fly. They're actually surprisingly charismatic. The males fight each other for access to the females. They've got these long front legs and you see them sort of have a scrap. They'll push each other with their arms. And it's the better fighter that gets to couple with the ladyfly. Then he'll pass on to her his cells and all the stuff that surrounds them. But the ladyfly won't lay any babies until the outside surroundings are just right. This is because these flies only have babies when there's enough food and water to keep them alive. The eggs don't actually become fertilized until they're laid. This means that there's a window of time when the cells from the mom and the dad are just sitting around each other, side by side, before they join. So what's happening in this time? Is anything important taking place before the cells join? We were really interested in looking at whether it's something in this semen that could influence the offspring traits. To get at this, you need to be able to differentiate between what the cells are doing and what all the stuff that surrounds them is doing. But there's no easy way to do this if it's all coming from the same fly. Because no matter where the information is coming from, the cells or the stuff around the cells, you'd end up with offspring that look a lot like their father. So if you want to know what's doing what, the cells and the stuff around them need to come from two different flies that look different. In the flies Angela studies, past experiments tell us that how big the offspring are is decided by how big the father is. A male that is large because of his diet has larger offspring. So to see how this gets passed on... We went down just to try and tackle that question. Is it in the sperm or is it in the semen? Ladyflies need to be coupled with two partners, one big, one small. One that fathers the offspring and one that doesn't. And this is by no surprise exactly what Angela's experiment did. She carried out a fully crossed experiment that included just over a hundred females as the focal females. With twice as many men flies. We keep each female in a separate cage. And feed them each the exact same thing. The men flies, on the other hand, were broken up into two different groups. One that was fed a lot, and one that was only fed a little. We put eggs onto either 
a high-condition diet that had lots of nutrients or onto a low-condition diet that was the same diet, just diluted. On day one of the experiment, each ladyfly was given a partner. We measured the females while they were immature. She was either given a small male or a large male to mate with. She was then left alone for three weeks. And in this time, she didn't lay any eggs because we didn't give her any substrate to lay eggs into. So her eggs are developing while being exposed to this semen from her first mating partner. Now jump forward in the experiment. At three weeks of age, remated her to a second male that's either in high condition or low condition, so a large or small male. We call this type of experiment fully crossed because every possible match is made. In this case, one quarter of the ladyflies were coupled with a small fly and then a big fly, the next quarter were coupled with a big fly and then a small fly, and the last two quarters were coupled with two big flies or two small ones. And then after that second mating, we allowed her to lay her eggs, remembering that the eggs don't get fertilized until they're laid. If the first partner does actually pass on any information relating to how big or small offspring are without fathering them, what Angela's team expected to see is an additive outcome. In other words, the ladyflies that were first coupled with a small fly than a big one would have babies that weren't just big like their fathers, but babies that would be somewhere in between big and small. And the same goes for the flipped situation where ladyflies are first coupled with a big fly and then a small one the offspring would wind up somewhere in between. Whereas in the big, big case, the offspring would turn out big, and in the small, small case, they'd be small. But what happened was shocking. To our absolute surprise, the male that fertilized the egg didn't actually pass on his condition at all. It was the previous mating partner that managed to pass on the condition. Whoa. So, not like father, like child. If your dad's big, you could still come out small if your mother previously mated to a small male, and vice versa. They were completely not expecting this outcome, so we immediately asked ourselves, what if it is the first fly that's the father and not the second one? How can they be so sure? We then had to actually sequence the genome of the flies and do some paternity analyses. It is the second male that is the father of the offspring. You are the father! The good news was that that told us that it's definitely not carried in the sperm itself. So if the first partner was small, but the dad was big, the offspring were also small. This means that the stuff that surrounds the cells is actually changing the outcome, the way the offspring look. The idea that your mom's past partners could change the way you look is so new in today's science that we and Angela don't even know how to say its name. Not sure how to pronounce telugoni, so. <laughs> to be honest, I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce it either. Um, I've only ever seen it written. I've never heard anyone else talking about it, but I decided I like the sound telegony. This idea is so strange sounding. The idea of telegony is basically that we can inherit traits from a previous mating partner who is not our father. So when a male mates with a female, he passes something onto the female that either changes her reproductive tract or changes the development of her eggs such that even though his sperm don't actually fertilize the egg, 
he can still influence the traits of those offspring, even when they go on to be sired by a different male. Even if researchers are only beginning to think about this field, this idea actually goes way back. It actually dates back to Aristotle. In Greek, the prefix tele means far, like telephone. And the suffix goni or gonos means offspring, so far offspring. When genetics became popular, this idea, which didn't really have any research to back it, sort of fell out of favor. But now, thanks to work like Angela's, which also uses genetics, we're getting a look into how there are non-genetic factors at play. We sort of opened up a can of worms unexpectedly. <laughs> which leads us to the question, if mom's past partners can pass on bigness, what else can they pass on? At this point, I would say anything could be possible, really. Because this is such a new field and we're just trying to figure out what's going on, it's really exciting because there's so many avenues and possibilities to start looking down and really any anything is possible but could also be completely wrong. <laughs> That's the beauty of curiosity-driven science. This discovery goes way beyond how big or how small a baby fly is. But we don't quite know how far beyond this, whether or not it applies to other facets of fly biology or maybe even to other species like us. So this has been a bit of a bone of contention um, with everyone. Could this happen in other species? And of course the answer is, I don't know. And we have no evidence to suggest that it does. But I would equally argue that we also don't have any evidence to suggest that it doesn't. And so why not? You know, I don't think it's ever going to be... You know, we would have noticed it if it was a really strong effect. You're never going to come out looking exactly like your mum's ex-boyfriend. That just doesn't make any sense. But, you know, there's nothing to suggest that we don't pick up things from all our mating partners and that this could influence our children. Um, you know, everything we do could influence our future children, but everything we do influences us. So, look, I really think it's it's something exciting and, and worth looking at, but the jury is still definitely out. Now that we realise that, you know, we can inherit all these traits, acquired traits from our parents, it means that in medical science, in conservation, it's something that they can now consider and incorporate into their treatments or just trying to understand the heritability of disease. Um, or things like, you know, when we do breeding programs for endangered species, um, the only thing that anyone focuses on is maintaining genetic variability. But if the parents are actually passing on their condition to the offspring as well, then it means we have to consider that when we design our breeding programs to try and save these animals. It's kind of crazy to think that all of these realizations came out of one research group's interest in how flies have babies. It, it is a little bit ridiculous how many hours I've spent just sitting there watching flies mate. Um, <laughs> and then when you go to tell people what you do, yeah, I, I watch flies have sex for a living. That's, that's pretty much what I do. And then I think about it a lot. Um, it makes for an interesting conversation down at the pub. <laughs> We're both totally cracked up in the studio over here. We just didn't want to laugh over you talking. That's <laughs> uh, very funny. <laughs> to think, such a small fly and specific case study, but such potentially big changes in how we understand and use biology. 
While telegony might tell us something about how past partners change our offspring, it also leads to the question, what else leaves a mark? Hi, I'm producer Nick Schofield. Thanks for listening to episode six of Science Faction. I look like my mom's ex. We're done for now, but we do want to hear from you. Get in touch with us on Twitter at SciFact Radio. And search for us on Facebook. Science Faction is Dalal Hanna and Andrea Reed with sounds and music made by Nick Schofield and is supported by Jeanne Valentin. Visit us online at sciencefaction.ca. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thanks again.